Turn, if you would, tonight to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the health and the ability that allows us to be in your house tonight. I pray that you would uh, bless the time that we have together. I pray, Lord, that this would be helpful. I pray that it would be something that we would retain uh, for the days and weeks to come. Uh, God, that it might be not only helpful to us, but maybe others who may come into our lives at some point in the future, that we might be able to give an answer uh, for some of what we do. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you glad to be here this evening? Good deal. All right. I'm glad that you're glad to be here tonight. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians this evening, obviously, as I just announced. And I know that most of you will remember that it was uh, two weeks ago that we were last in this study because Brother Chad preached in my absence last week. But I want to remind us of what we talked about two weeks ago so that we can just kind of remember the context of things and remember the flow of things. But you may remember that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the believers of Corinth, was explaining what biblical preaching will do and what biblical preaching will accomplish. He said that if a lost person were to come into their presence and the preaching of the Word of God was taking place, he essentially said this, that they would be convicted of their sins, that they would realize that the truth was being spoken, and as a result of, of realizing the truth that was being preached, he said that they would fall on their face and that they would give a report that God is in you. And he said that stood in complete contradiction as to what was taking place in their services where they had turned to emotionalism and all the tongues and everything that was taking place. He said, if somebody were to walk into your presence, walk into your church services who was unsaved or unlearned, he said the conclusion they would come to is that you were crazy or that you were mad. And so obviously there was a poor trade-off being made in the church there at Corinth because they were sacrificing biblical preaching and everything that it would accomplish for the emotionally driven services that would do nothing but repel the lost or the unsaved. And I tried to remind us two weeks ago that what we are seeing in our society today in the religious ranks of things is this, is the same trade-off being made in so many churches. So many churches are sacrificing the preaching of the Word of God for reasons that only they can explain, but they assume that what will happen is they will become more effective. Most of them believe this, that they will become more effective if they sacrifice the preaching and they take some other route, they take some other direction with their ministry. And what we must always be mindful of is this, is that there is nothing more effective in reaching the lost than the preaching of the Word of God. And if we ever choose to sacrifice that, then the consequences will be as negative for us as they were for the church in Corinth. You and I cannot afford to get away from the preaching of the Word of God. And I want to say this one more time. I think I touched on it then. I don't say that just because I'm the preacher. It is a biblical truth that you and I cannot deny. There were so many opportunities for the Apostle Paul to emphasize what mattered in the life of a church, and throughout the Scripture, he emphasized preaching. You and I must take preaching serious. Now, tonight we're going to move on. We're going to look at some Scripture that I would imagine is fairly familiar to many of us. I want to say this right up front, all right? 
I know you're familiar with it. I know that most of you will not squabble over this whatsoever. But I think sometimes we need to be reminded of why we do some of the things we do and why we believe some of the things we believe and why we take the approach that we sometimes take. Now, in saying that, tonight's text is pretty straightforward, it's pretty clear, it's pretty easy to understand, and the only reason that a person would reject this is because they just don't want to accept what the Bible says. So it's not that they'd be rejecting me or you or anyone else who might hold to this position. It just boils down to this reality and to this truth. Well, that's not what I want to do. So that being said, tonight I'm going to share a little story and then hopefully it'll segue into the principle that we'll be dealing with tonight. I'm sure I've mentioned this at some point in the past, but by nature I am a planner. All right, I like to plan things. I like to be organized. I like to be structured. And though there are benefits to that, there have been times that that has caused some friction. Can you imagine that? Some of you cannot imagine that, but some of you can. See, there have been times on vacation that I wanted everything planned out. I wanted everything structured. I wanted everything organized. And so before we left, if you had said to me, what time do you have to wake up on Tuesday morning? I could have told you we'll need to be awake by this time so that we can be here by this particular time so that we can have X number of hours here so that we can get back to the hotel by this particular time. And people would have looked at me and said, you're crazy. And I can understand that now looking back. It's not always the best way to handle that. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been with someone and you were not the one in charge, you were just kind of along for the ride? And the people who were supposed to be in charge, you could tell, had given it almost little or no thought to what was about to be taking place? Have you ever been in a situation like that? It's sometimes, for lack of better words, it's sometimes chaotic, is it not? Because you've got a group of people standing around saying, well, what are we going to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What do you want to do? And you've got one kid piping in saying, well, this is what I want to do. And another kid saying, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And pretty soon you've got this frustration building, do you not? Because nobody has taken charge and nobody has planned anything and so with this lack of ch taking charge and this lack of planning things and lack of organizing, uh, you have a mess. And so what you're reminded of, real quickly, if you've ever been in a situation like either one of those two extremes, you're reminded of this truth. Okay, we need some balance here, right? We need some kind of a game plan. We need some kind of an approach as to what it is we're going to be doing today. Is there room for some variation? Is there some room for flexibility? Yes. But we don't want to just go throughout the entire day with no plans, with no ideas to what's going to happen, because that does not lead to anything productive either. Okay, so why mention that? Well, again, I wanted that to segue into this principle, into this thought, and that is this. How should church be conducted? And whenever I say that, whenever I ask that, how should church be conducted, what I'm really wanting us to consider tonight is this, is how should our assemblies and what should a church service look like? 
I'm not worried about the building in which we or some other church were to meet in. I'm not worried about certain aspects of church life. But what I want us to think about tonight is this, is what should our assemblies and what should a church service look like? And the reason I ask that is because I want us to consider this truth that the Scripture tells us what a church service ought to look like. There really is a pattern set in place, and there really is a format given. And as you think about that, I want us to understand something, that a church service is not to be so regimented and so structured and so filled with rules and guidelines that there is no flexibility whatsoever. I don't know if you've ever been in a church service like that, but those aren't particularly enjoyable services to be in. If you've ever been in one of those, you know it's like stand up, sit down, kneel down, do this, do that, do this, do this. That's not really what a church service is supposed to feel like. But neither is a church service supposed to feel like a free-for-all. Where it's just kind of chaotic and disorderly and no real structure. What the scripture would tell us tonight is this, and we'll look at it in just a moment, and that is... Whenever God's people assemble, whenever God's people come together for the purpose of a service, for the purpose of uh, of what church is supposed to accomplish, God has a plan, and it is supposed to be orderly, it is supposed to be organized, there is supposed to be structure to it. It is not supposed to be just however the Spirit leads, whatever that may look like. Well, how do we know? Well, let's begin tonight. In verse number 33, Paul says in verse number 33, For God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author or the originator or the initiator of confusion. So what is confusion? Well, confusion would be disorder or chaos. Now we'll see this in a few minutes, what led to this statement by the Apostle Paul And here's what we will find, is that the church in Corinth, when they assembled, when they came together, guess what they had? They had pure disorder and they had pure chaos. And what the Apostle Paul is going to share with them, as we've just read, is this, is that God is not the author of this confusion. God is not the order or the author of disorder and chaos. That is not God. how God operates at all. God is a God of order and a God of structure. So it should not surprise any believer that God would expect the times and the seasons and the occasions where the children of God assemble, it should not surprise us that God would expect this to be orderly. Not boring, but orderly. Now I think sometimes we teeter on the problematic side of boring. And that could be for a host of reasons. But nonetheless, there's supposed to be some order, there's supposed to be some structure, not disorder, not chaos. He said in verse number 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So what does that mean? It means this, that God is not the author of or the originator of confusion, disorder, chaos, but he is the author, or he would be the originator of that which is peace. So what is peace? Well, it would be tranquility, or a quietness, or a sense of calm. 
tranquility, quietness, or a sense of calm. Now, I don't think we're going to threaten confusion tonight. All right? I don't sense that being something we're about to blaze into here in the next couple of moments. But I want us to think about this for just a moment. As God is not the author of confusion, He is the author of peace or quietness or tranquility or a calm. Now, if you think about that verse in its context, which it has to be handled in its context, then here is what you must decide, and here is what you must determine if you're going to be a biblical Christian, and that is this. Services where the people of God are assembled need to be tranquil and calm and peaceful. Now, why did the Apostle Paul say that? Well, we all know why he said that, don't we? Because at this stage in his life, he was an old man. He didn't have the energy to get up and dance like he used to in the church services, right? When the music was really going and the spirit was really moving back when he was younger, he had the energy to really, you know, get up and move and to shake and to do all those things that the younger generation was doing. You know, he used to run the tops of the pews like the good preachers did, right? But now he's just an old man and he's not into that. And you know what it's like when you get old, you just get cranky in general, don't you? You know, everything's too loud. Everything's just too wild. Everything's just, you know, just just cranked up too much. Is that why the Apostle Paul said this? Of course not. The Apostle Paul did not say this because he was some old fogey that that, that was just determined to, to squelch any kind of fun that could be had in the church. No, he is saying this because he was led by the Spirit to write these words that whenever church is assembled, when the believers have come together, it needs to be calm, it needs to be tranquil, and it needs to be peaceful. It doesn't need to be about all the hype and all the emotion and all the show and all the noise and everything else that man can produce in a service. It's not about entertainment. Now, I know that there could be some who might hear me say these words. If they were to listen to it on CD, if they were to listen to it on the Internet, they may say something like this, Kyle, you, you just you don't understand today's generation. That's probably true more than I want to admit, but I do know this, that if we're going to stick with the Scripture, then what Paul was saying, it had nothing to do with generational issues. It had everything to do with how you and I are going to conduct ourselves in the house of God. Now, I say that for this reason, and I'm just going to throw this out here so that we can get this out of the way and then move on. We live in a society today that thinks that in order to reach a different generation, you've got to change your tactics and you have to change your methodology and you have to change your approach. And essentially what they're saying is this, is we have to be secular in order to get the people in and entice them to, to be attracted to the house of God. Well, friends, that's not biblical. 
So you'll hear people say things like this. Well, I like to go where the music is really this. I like to go where they are able to do this for the, the young people. And, and whatever it is they, they mention by way of the sales pitch and the approach to, to how they're reaching the next generation. I just want to remind us, though it may not be the most exciting of environments for kids and young people, when they go to the house of God, you know what they need to be exposed to? A place of peace. A place of quietness, a place of calm, a place of tranquility. They don't need to go somewhere where the music is pounding and the strobe lights are flashing and the fog machine is producing the fog and it's an entertainment industry for the next hour to however long they keep them there. I'll just go ahead and get this out of the way and just get it out of my system, all right? A couple of years ago, I went to a church here in town. I'm not being critical of the church. I'm just sharing with you my experience. I went because one of our children had been invited to this activity on a Friday night, and so we went over there to pick them up, and the activity had not concluded itself. As soon as I was walking up to the building, you could tell they're not done. Because the music was blaring, and whenever I walked inside and found the person that I was looking for that could take me to our uh, child, you literally had to yell at them to communicate while the church service was going on because the music was blaring and the person with the microphone was screaming into it and in their mind, they were having church. They had assembled, no doubt. And I don't know what all went on, but I know this. Their assembly was unbiblical. You can't say that. No, we can. Because he said God is not the author of confusion, of disorder and chaos, but he is the author of peace. And notice what he said next. As in all churches of the saints. See, basically what Paul was conveying is this is that this is a universal truth. That for all the churches of the saints, here is what it's supposed to be like, that there would not be confusion, that there would not be disorder, that there would not be chaos, but that when you would go to the assemblies, when you would go to the church services, here is what you would find, some calm, some tranquility, some peacefulness, and what you would hear then is the declaration of the Word of God. Not the entertainment, not the hype, not the emotionalism. You will hear the preaching of the Word of God. Why is that so important? Because if we consider all of chapter 14, and as we'll see in a couple of moments, it is the preaching of the Word of God that edifies the believer. It's the preaching of the Word of God that builds up the believer, and it is the preaching of the Word of God that convicts the lost and shows them their need of salvation. It is only the preaching of the Word of God that can produce these results. So this should be a universal truth and a universal concept that when a person enters into the house of God, this is what they can be sure of. 
This will not be chaotic. This will not be disorderly. It is going to be a time of peace. It will be a time of calm. It will be a time of tranquility. And at some point, I will hear the preaching of the Word of God. Is there room for some flexibility for maybe an extra song? Of course there is. Is there some flexibility for maybe a few testimonies to be given? Of course there is. But there will be an order. There will be structure to it. This will not be mayhem taking place. So what prompted the Apostle Paul to say all this? We'll go back to verse number 26. Keeping in mind they have made this poor trade of emotionalism in substitution of the preaching of the Word of God, he said, How is it then, brethren? How is this so? When ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm. What does that mean? It means this, that whenever the church was coming together, whenever the church was assembling, everybody had a psalm or everyone had a song that they wanted to engage in. Now, I don't know if that was somewhat of an exaggeration, but the picture given is this, is that at least there were some in the church and they wanted to present a song. Others, he said, hath doctrine. Well, what is he saying there? Well, it means this, that somebody had something they wanted to teach. They had something they wanted to bring to the people. And yet at the same time, he said, everyone hath a tongue. What is a tongue? Well, a tongue, biblically, again, as we have said repeatedly throughout this study, is it is an unknown language, but it is a language that is known to someone or a dialect, but it is not just something that is unintelligible and something that is not understood by people. A tongue is always something understood by someone. It has nothing to do with this idea of heavenly communication. All right. He said, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation. Somebody says, hey, I've got something new I've got to share with you. And he said, some hath an interpretation. Now notice what he said. He said, let all things be done unto edifying. He said, everything that happens in the church should be done for the purpose of building up the believers. Now, why would Paul say that and stress that once more? Why would he emphasize this? The only reason he would emphasize it once more is if what they were doing was not edifying the church. Does this make sense? We bring things to people's attention over and over and over again if they are not doing what they ought to be doing and conducting themselves in the way they ought to be conducting themselves. So Paul said, let all things be done unto edifying. In verse number 27, really this will help you in today's world, okay? He said, if any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three. Okay, so back in their day when the gift of tongues was still in existence, when this was still happening and taking place, here is what he said. He said, now in your services, when you have come together, here is what it's supposed to look like as it relates to the subject of tongues. Let it be by two or at the most by three. What does that mean? It means this. Okay, in any given assembly, in any time of, uh, of coming together as a corporate body, you've got to understand one of the rules. This helps keep it orderly and non-chaotic, okay? The most who could speak with an unknown tongue is this. 
three. Okay? Now, that may not mean anything to you, but I'm just saying, go to a Pentecostal charismatic church. Let the Spirit start moving. We're not sure what Spirit, but let the Spirit start moving. And you know what you'll have? You will have a far greater number than three people speaking in this thing that they call tongues. Now immediately, here is what we can know without any doubt, without any hesitation, that as soon as more than three people have spoken in tongues, it is no longer a biblical assembly. It has just crossed the line of anything orderly, anything that was organized, anything that was structured, anything that was peaceful, tranquil, whatever it's supposed to be. At that moment, if more than three people have spoken with some kind of an unknown tongue, it is no longer a biblical assembly, and it is no longer about the edifying of the saints. It is now all about the edification of the individual speaking in the tongues. If that doesn't prove it, notice what he said next. He said, let it be by two, or at the most, by three. And then he said... And that by course. What does that mean? It means this. You have to go in order. You have to take turns. You don't get to say, okay, now you three people can just start going nuts whenever you want. No, what has to happen is this. is If tongues were to be spoken, it has to be first this person then they have to get done with whatever it is they're going to say. Then the second person would be allowed to speak, but the first person can't be speaking while the second person is speaking, and the third person can't be speaking while the second person is speaking, and only after the second person is done speaking can the third person begin to speak in tongues. And if that is not the order in which it is approached, and if that is not the way in which it is handled, I just want to say one more time, it's not a scriptural approach to how an assembly of believers is supposed to take place. Somebody says, well, I don't think that's really what he means. Well, notice what he said next. And let one interpret. See, because speaking in tongues only edifies the person if there's no interpretation. Do you see how this just kind of obliterates the modern-day charismatic movement? I don't say this because I'm angry at them. I don't say this because I'm mad at them and I have ill will toward them. I'm just saying we need to know why we handle our services the way in which we do and why we don't approach certain things the way that we don't. See, if, if a service is going to be biblical, if a service is going to be scriptural, it must be orderly, it must be structured. And if someone were to suggest that tongues were still a, a, a legitimate gift in today's society, then I would simply respond by saying this, that if it's going to be exercised in the church, the most you can ever have in any service is three. It has to be done consecutively, one after the other, and there must be an interpretation or notice what uh, Paul said in verse number 28. He said, But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. What does that mean? It means this. Well, if there's no one there to interpret these tongues, these messages given in the unknown language, then here's what you do. You keep your mouth shut. 
And, and all you do is this, is you just communicate with yourself silently and to God, but you do not bring it to the church if there is no one there to interpret. So why do we try to avoid so much of the emotionalism? Why do we try to avoid so much of the hype and the hysteria? Why do we try to avoid that? Because it's really an edification of self rather than the body of believers. But then to get more specific, especially as it relates to the charismatic movement, when you start dealing with the tongues, you have to avoid it because there are certain rules that apply to it. So then what comes after that? Well, notice in verse number 29. Just so you know, this is really needed. Okay, I don't want to just keep laboring that, but I want you to know this is needed. So verse number 29, notice what he said next. Let the prophets speak, two or three, and let the other judge. Well, what was a prophet? Well, a prophet was a mouthpiece of God. He was a spokesman of God. What did they have prophets for in their day? Well, they had prophets for this reason, to give a declaration of the mind of God, the will of God, or, or the desire of God to the body of believers. How many of you realize this, that whenever the believers in Corinth assembled, they did not carry their Bibles to the services? Do you remember this? Do you realize this? See, it was still in Christianity a time of transition. So here's what would happen is a prophet would speak. A mouthpiece of God would speak. And as they spoke, maybe as many as two or three, here's what would happen. The others in the church who might have the gift of prophecy or the gift of prophesying, of declaring the word of God, here's what they would do is they would judge or they would determine if what was being said stayed in line with what had already been revealed by God for the people of God. Because, see, back in their day, it was just as easy to say something wrong or to teach something false as it is today. Maybe even easier in their day because they didn't have a word of God by which to line it up with immediately. And so when the assembly was gathered, wherever it would take place, the prophets would speak, the others would judge. And notice what he said in verse number 30. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. Well, Paul, what are you saying? Well, when you came together as a group of believers there in Corinth, you may have someone scheduled to speak. And as they are speaking, they may be going over things that they have been taught somewhere else, or they may be going over things that are reviewed for the church, presented again in some fashion. But he said it may be that that there is another one in the assembly and they have been given a new revelation. He said, if that were to take place, let the first hold his peace. Now again, what is he doing? He is giving them instructions on how to conduct themselves in the house of God. 
This is how you approach things. So if the Lord begins to move upon a prophet, and the prophet were to begin speaking to the people a new word of revelation or a new word of understanding, then the one who was previously speaking needs to sit down and let the other one speak. And notice what he said, that all may learn and all may be comforted. What are you wanting to do? You're wanting to be a benefit to everyone. Not just yourself. So as a result of the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, speaking this revelation or speaking this word to the people, here is what will happen, is all will learn and all will be comforted or all will be encouraged. And then once more, in verse number 32, he said this, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Somebody says, I don't know what that means. Okay, well, what is the spirit a reference to? Well, it's the reference to the inner man. Okay? So he says that the spirit or the inner man of the prophet is subject or under the authority of the prophet. What do you mean, Paul? Okay, it's indicating this. That the prophet, the preacher, the one declaring, whomever it may be in the service at that time, has full control over himself and his spirit and his inner man. This is not some wild, chaotic, emotional, out-of-control rant or presentation presented to the body of believers. This is not something where it becomes crazy, where it becomes weird, where it becomes inappropriate, where it becomes to the point where people think this person is mad or this person is crazy. What Paul is conveying is this, is listen, that the prophets, they have control of themselves. Again, this never gets out of control in the house of God. Now, if you've not been exposed to the charismatic movement, if you've not been exposed to the charismatic movement, even in the Baptist churches, then this may seem foreign to you. You may have a hard time understanding this because you know that my level of excitement many times isn't extremely high, okay? But what I am saying is this, is many times in today's religious society and culture, here's what you've got. You've got men many times in the pulpit who are completely out of control, and frankly, it seems as though they have no idea what they are saying, what they are presenting, but they've gotten caught up in the hype, and they've gotten caught up in the excitement, and things are just coming out, but they have no idea what it is they're saying. So what should a church service look like? It should look organized. It should look structured. It should look very much like someone thought it out. Like we know where we're starting and we know where we're ending and we've got a purpose to the assembly. We don't handle the services the manner in which we do because we're just old people stuck in a rut and we don't want to let the young people have their way. That's not why we do what we do. We're trying to do this because of the scripture that lays out what a service is supposed to look like. 
The services need to be a place of peace, quietness, tranquility, calm. I'll say it one more time just for the point of emphasis so that you understand this. Our services do not have to lack life. They do not have to be boring. They do not have to be miserable. We can enjoy the assembling of ourselves together. In fact, we ought to enjoy it. But it should never be based on the emotionalism and the hype and everything that we can produce. It ought to be that what thrills us and what excites us and what causes us to get stirred ultimately is the preaching of the Word of God. And that should be what we hope to instill even in our children, that what we are most concerned with and what we are most uh, consumed with is the preaching of the Word of God because that is the only thing that is able to produce in our lives what needs to be produced. And so are these truths just readily accepted today? Well, of course not. But you cannot read the Scripture and walk away with any other understanding. The only way that you can do that is if you say, you know what, I choose to just ignore this passage of Scripture and we're just going to keep doing things the way we want to. Well, you can do that and anybody can do that if they so choose. But it does not mean then that it is a biblical, scriptural approach to assembling. So I hope, if nothing else tonight, you better understand and I mean that like, like you have a better understanding of why we do things the way we do them. I hope you understand it's not just personality, but it's scriptural. And no matter how much the church gets driven by entertainment, we need to be men and women who say, you know, if that's what you choose to do, that's your choice. But we're just going to try to keep it simple, keep it calm, keep it tranquil, where everybody knows what's going on and everybody knows what happened at the end of a service. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. Lord, I pray that tonight's message, as I said a moment ago, that it would just be a help to us. God, that it would be the reminder that we need not to be critical of those who may do things different because that is between them and you. But Lord, it seems quite clear that Scripture is very clear on what a service should look like and the approach that we should take. So God, I pray that you'd help us to stay biblical, that you would help us to stay scriptural, and God, that you'd help us to honor you in the way in which we handle ourselves. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.